John, we'll ask you some rapid fire questions now. First one, right. why why data analytics? Why data analytics? Uh, because I'm just I'm curious about everything in the world. I, I love to talk about physics. I want to talk about business. I want to talk about pricing, advertising effectiveness. It's just a career that allows me to indulge my curiosity. Do you think technology will rule the world in the next decade? No. Right. The most important question, what do you think about Inspiring Idea podcast? I love it. You guys are fantastic. I mean, you know, the questions were great. The the dialogue is fantastic. Uh, you guys are well informed and, and interested in what's going on. So uh, I suggest everybody to subscribe to the channel and, and try to listen in, in on every episode. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Hi, I'm Abhinav. I'm Madhu. Welcome to the Inspiring Idea Podcast. We interview people from across the world and share their life stories and success formulas with our audience. We hope this will inspire you to achieve your dreams. So, let's get the show started. Hi, our guest today is analytics guru, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and a data science thought leader. He's got over 30 years of experience in building and growing technology companies. Please welcome John Thompson. John, how are you going today? I'm doing great. Good to be with you guys. How are you, how are you today? Absolutely awesome. <laughs> Can't wait to hear gold nuggets from you. I have to start with this, John, and even before even your introduction, right? So one of my friends, a couple of years ago, uh, got the book, uh, Analytics, How to Win with Intelligence. I'm still holding a copy as we speak, right? So the concept is so lucidly explained. Well done. So, and then he was able to crack an interview and uh, he's saying, oh, it's the best book that I've ever read. That's great. That's fantastic. I really appreciate the feedback. It was one of those things I was, uh, I was traveling all over the world when I was working at Dell and interviewing and, and well, I was meeting with and, and selling to uh, a lot of C-level executives, non-technical C-level executives, CEOs, CFOs, COOs. Those kind of those kind of people, and and I noticed that there was a a real reticence. You know, once we started talking about analytics, uh, these these leaders, men and women, uh, just really were uncomfortable talking about data and algorithms and math. And 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 after a while, I just started asking them, "Why are you so nervous about this? Why does this? You know, you're you're willing to talk about capital expenditures for multi millions of dollars for building factories and supply chains and hiring accounting staff and but you're really uncomfortable about analytics and the the refrain that kept coming back was we don't understand these people mm -hmm. um interesting that they would say these people uh <laughs> you know it was it was that you know they're different you know they cost a lot of money and i don't know how to manage them and i don't know what to expect and and another aspect is the ceos and and all these executives have bain and mckinsey and deloitte and e and y uh, the consulting firms coming into them and saying, you need to get on the analytics bandwagon. You need to do something about this. But they would never tell them, you know, you need to hire this kind of leader. You need to spend this kind of money. You can have these expectations that they can do this kind of work for you. These expectations are unrealistic. They can't do this kind of thing. So I just thought I'm going to sit down and write this book. So that's how it came to be. That's beautiful. John, uh, let's actually start with your brief introduction. You know, I was uh, so fascinated with uh, 
uh, your entry into you know data analytics and if you can uh, share it with our listeners please yeah absolutely i uh i you know got an undergraduate degree in computer science and i, I started working in in downtown chicago at, at large firms i worked for a uh, a transportation firm for a couple of years. I worked for a bank for a couple of years. Uh, and I was, I, I recently wrote about this on LinkedIn. Uh, I was working at the bank and I went to lunch with a couple of the senior executives and I was asking them, you know, how can I, how can I rise up in the bank? How can I be more important? How can I be successful at the bank? And they asked me all sorts of questions, you know, what do you like and what don't you like? And what do you want to do? And what's your future? What do you see yourself doing? And after this lunch in this beautiful environment overlooking Lake Michigan, it was the Chicago Athletic Club, really a, a, just a lovely room and a great lunch. And, and the one looked at the other and they both nodded. And, and the other one, one guy turned to me and said, you have to quit. You know, the bank was paying for my MBA and, and you know, and I was, I was all, all in and ready to go. And they said, you know, we have people like you because we have to, you know, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't really you know, you're never going to be successful at the bank. You're never going to be somebody that we care about. So just quit, you know, and don't worry about it. We'll take care of all that. Just resign, work here, do your job, but find something else. You know, you, it's not going to work for you. So that really put me on a path of looking at technology companies. And I found a small one called Metaphor, which was the early, one of the very early uh, data warehousing and business intelligence and analytics companies. And and I've been doing it ever since, 30 plus years. So I, I've gone from being a consultant and flying all over the world and working at some of the biggest companies, building systems, uh, Coke, Cadbury Schweppes, uh, Lloyd's, TSB, uh, all sorts of companies in the United States, in the UK, uh, in Japan and Brazil. Uh, and then I moved into product management and helped build some of the early uh, analytical technologies. And then I've moved back and forth over the last 15 years of either being in a vendor innovating and building technologies mm-hmm. or being in a company like I am now with CSL Bearing, where, you know, building analytics teams and analytics infrastructures and analytical models to drive efficiency and effectiveness. So it's, uh, it's been a great 30 plus years. It's been really fun. So that's the purpose of this Inspiring Ideas podcast. So every time we listen to our guests, we can find the spark. There is that moment which completely transformed them from what they were currently doing to what they wanted to really do with such passion. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah, Yeah. it was amazing. I mean, that lunch changed my life. I I couldn't believe, you know, these two guys, one was, one was Dutch, one was Irish uh, working in Chicago. And they both just looked at me and said, you got to (laughs) quit. That's, that's a really fascinating story because it shows that uh, sometimes you need to, even if you're doing good in your life, you need to quit and, you know, question yourself and try to find your own passion. And I think that's that's just fantastic for our listeners. Uh, John, moving ahead, would you be able to unpack analytics and its relevance today? Seems it's a hot cake in the market. Oh, there's no doubt about that. You know, it's been one of those things that, you know, as, as if you look back in history and time, you know, we've been working on computing systems now for 60, 70 years. And uh, it's taken us all this time to get to a point of where there is a substantial understanding around the world of the value of data. Uh, you know, when I started talking about this probably 20 years ago, uh, people just looked at me like I had six eyes, you know, they're like, you know, and not in a good way. 
Um, you know, they're like, what's wrong with you? You know, data is just, it's just stuff. It's part of systems. It doesn't really, it's nothing that you should really care about. And, and I kept saying, no, the data is the lifeblood of it. You know, this is it. Uh, you know, and then we've gotten to the point where people understand the value of data, but then they also understand that the data alone is, is not the thing. It's the data and the analytics coming together that will help drive businesses forward. So it's, uh, it, it, you know, everybody, I love it. You know, everybody thinks, wow, you just got into this. It's really been exciting. And, and you're at the right place at the right time. And I'm like, well, I've been here for decades. <laughs> it's just the market came to where I've been. Yeah. So, you know, it's really exciting for me. You know, uh, my daughter works in, you know, it, she's in a University of Michigan in the School of Information. And, and my son went to University of Illinois for computer science. And uh, it's really exciting. We, you know, when the new generation or the newer generation, younger generations come around and want to talk about data and analytics, because for you guys, you're obviously younger than me. Uh, you know, it's, it, you see it, you just, it's the way you've grown up, you know, it's data is everywhere and data is the lifeblood and data is something to be used and, and leveraged. So it's, it's an exciting time. That's, that's really good. So John, what would be your advice for devising an analytic strategy for an organization? Well, there's lots of ways to do that. It's a great mm -hmm. question. It's a, it's a very broad question. Yeah. Uh, what I've been doing over the years is, is I've been either working in very pointed areas like in supply chain or manufacturing or uh, understanding customers or pricing or something like that. Or like I'm, I'm now at CSL, I'm working, uh, I have a team, uh, you know, a, a very a great team. I love the team I have right now. And we work across the whole organization. So it really depends on the spot. Uh, the point in time where the organization is, you know, if the organization understands at the C level, the value of data and analytics, then you mm -hmm. get the air cover you need and you can go pretty much anywhere in the organization. So if you have uh, C level executives that understand it and, and invest and give you the, the mandate that you need to operate, you can go across the whole company. And, and that's a wonderful thing. But if you don't have that and you just have, let's say, the, the CFO or the COO or the uh, CTO or someone like that who understands it, then you really need to drill down and your analytic strategy needs to be focused to make sure that you're working in the area where you have the support of the senior level executives. You, you heard that in reading analytics, how to win with intelligence. Uh, you really need to make sure that you have the people above you that are supporting you. I think every... Uh and strategy comes up with challenge and a lot of challenges and data, data everywhere, not a drop to use. And at the same time, the way people look at it, yes, there are a lot of uh, data points which we can leverage. So th there are two broad spectrums as well. So uh, operationally, what are the key challenges that you have faced and how did you overcome them in terms of applying and implementing strategies? You know, it's, you know, strategy is important. Um, you know, what another thing that's very important is, is actual results. Uh, you know, we, we live in a world that has all the aspects that we talked about. People understand data, they understand mm -hmm. analytics, they know the value of it. Uh, but often, you know, the quarterly results are the ones that trump everybody's interests. You know, everybody wants to know, what are you going to do for me today? What's going to happen tomorrow? So you, you can implement the strategy in many different ways. But one thing that, that comes into play in every initiative that you take is that you have to move through those initiatives in a way 
that you're providing value almost from the beginning. Yeah. You know, and it's not hard for us in analytics because often we're looking at the world through a data lens. We're not looking at it through the lens of gut feeling or intuition or historical um, experience, which those things are all great. And I, and I, I am not denigrating those in any way, mm -hmm. but you know, I, I can go, I, I could take the entire time here. I could take the entire day and night talking to you about examples of where we've analyzed the business from the data and it doesn't line up with the way people talk about the business. So you need to understand your strategy, of course. And then as you drill down, one of the first things you need to do in an organization is find a project that has strategic impact, execute on it, and make sure everybody understands, you know, what the change in the business is going to be driven from those analytics and what the ROI, the return on investment is, and what the impact is to the business in general. So while you're following the strategy and you're, you know, implementing the strategy in, in everyday operations, you need to keep in mind that analytics without results is just, it's actually a waste of time. Any tips on ROI? Uh, because every, every time we talk about uh, the new technology and how it's going to impact the business, as you say, uh, most of the leaders fumble with ROI, you know, return on investment, be it AI, be it data, be it analytics, because it's new and uh, the fear of unknown, and we don't know what we don't know. Uh, there are a lot of blind spots about all of these new technologies. So is there any tip that you would give for uh, senior leaders or decision makers in terms of finding that ROI, which is more manageable? Yeah, one of the, one of the things that you have to keep in mind is that while you, you want to do everything we've talked about, you want to get off the mark, you want to move fast, you want to make a change, you want to be clear about what you're doing, you also want to take a little time in the beginning to measure what is happening today. You want a baseline of what you started from. Uh, and if you don't have that, then it's really hard to have the comparison in the future of what you improved. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to have the comparative and then you have to understand what you're shooting for. Are you shooting for more customers? Are you looking for longer website visits? Are you trying to, you know, increase the basket value? Are you trying to, you know, you know, help veterinary clinics? What, whatever you're trying to do, you know, you need to understand what it was. You need to understand where you're going. And then when you're done, you need to go back and look at it and say, okay, well, we were on this curve before and now we did this. And the delta of that is your value add. So you need to just calculate it out and show people, you know, in the first year at CSL for every project, we had an ROI thread that we went through. Um, we did great work and are still doing great work. Uh, but now we don't really get called on the carpet uh, about that anymore because people realize, you know, we have a bottom line mentality. We have a, an, an investment, an improvement uh, investment mindset. You know, we're not here just to collect data and do analytics because we love to do it. Although we do, we do love to do it. But we understand that we need to make the company better. We need to drive efficiency and effectiveness through our work. So we're very serious about it and you can do it. You just have to, it's like anything else in analytics. You just have to collect the data and be methodical about how you uh, look at the before and after. So I think that's interesting because what you're saying is that with the ROI concept that also builds a lot of trust within the organization and for you to expand beyond what you were working on. Exactly. Absolutely true. 
Uh, I get calls daily around our organization from people that, you know, they don't really want me to do any work. They don't want my team to do any work, but what they want is they want me to validate or my team to validate how they're thinking about it. You know, because we've proven that we're level-headed, intelligent, curious, engaged people. So, you know, it's fine with me. I, I think that's great that people come to us all the time and say, you know, hey, we're thinking about doing this project. We'd love you to look at this vendor or look at our approach or talk to us about, you know, what we think we're going to do. Can we do it better? You know, so we think of ourselves as internal consultants. Mm. Uh, you know, we work for CSL. We are employees of CSL. Uh, but we look at everything as if, you know, it's a possibility for us to improve and, and add value in some way, even if we're not on the, the main project team. That's excellent. Uh, John, moving on to the next one, which is more about I see AI as a constellation of technologies. It's not just a one single technology. It's very broad. It's so massive. You know, AI, analytics, data science, blockchain, AR, VR, MR. All these are, are powerful technologies in itself, right? So that's how tech has evolved today. So how can we piece it together? And if you can uh, give some great examples from uh, the great implementations that we have seen so far, and what they're going to see? Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, there are lots of tools in our toolkit. That's for sure. Uh, you know, there a lot of attention has been given to GPT three and uh, you know BERT and the the natural language processing stacks, and and it's now starting to actually split up. You know, we see NLP, and under that we see NLG, natural language generation. We see natural language understanding. Uh, you know, we see all sorts of things going on and that's well beyond anything that we see in statistics or uh, neural nets or anything like that. And one of the things that I'm really excited about right now is probabilistic programming techniques where they're marrying Bayesian theory into neural nets, which is so exciting, you know, that, you know, we're not just having, you know, many, many microweights and in, inside the uh, neural nets, we're actually having Bayesian probabilities at, at all the nodes, which is just mind-blowingly cool. Uh, you know, so the way we do it is that, you know, we have a team and each of the team members has an area of specialty. We've got one guy who's great with neural nets. We've got another guy who's an NLP expert. We've got a young lady who's just really fantastic at statistics. Uh, and they all work together. You know, they all share and collaborate and work together. It's impossible for any of us to be an expert in all these areas. It would just be, you, your mind would melt, you know, trying to keep up with all this stuff. So my view on it is what you do is you have a, a cohort or a cadre or a team of people who are experts in specific areas, and you bring them together and you put them together, you know, in, in different formations, uh, you know, so they can work together and build things that are going to drive value that we've been talking about up to now. So, you know, we build applications for our users and we put them together in a way, we were just having a demo the other day for one of our users that on one pane of glass, we had a map-based interface that had five predictive models behind it mm -hmm. and a ton of statistical routines. And they kept talking about, oh, what does the model say? What does the model say? And we had to stop them and say, look, you know, you're never going to understand which model is producing this information. You're just not. So don't even try. And half this information is just statistics. So the, the model doesn't say anything. That's just stats. 
So, you know, we got them to finally just back away and say, you know, you don't really care what's going on behind here because we've all proved it. We've validated and certified it. So just use it. It's good stuff. It's going to be great. It's the best you can get. And we'll keep it running in the background for you. So it's, it's one of those things that it's a big stew. You want to have a team that understands the, the tools and how to make it work. And then, you know, make sure your users don't have to care about what's coming up on the glass because they, they don't understand it anyway. That's really great. Madhu, you asked a question about different technologies which get associated with AI. My question is that I'm sure some of these technologies would be dead and would not have enough scope in future. What's your view on that, John? On technologies that are dead-end technologies? Yes. Is that, is that the question? Yes. Um, that's hard to predict. Uh, you know, it was, it was said you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, well, I guess 20 years ago now, that neural nets were dead. Uh, you know, that there was no, no use and no value in them. And at the time, you know, I was working at IBM when they came out with neural network version one, uh, and, and I worked with it on a, a PC-80, which predates anything you guys have ever seen, two floppy you know, drive, disks with no, drive, no hard drive. Uh, and the, the assessment, uh, the result of the assessment was that there was no future. Uh, you know, and the problem was that the computers weren't fast enough, they weren't powerful enough, there wasn't a disk, there was not enough memory. Uh, it just, just really didn't work. Uh, but now, you know, here we are 20 years later, and who would say neural nets didn't have a future? I don't think anybody would say that. So uh, it's hard to say what is going to die and what's not going to work, because we don't know what the future is going to be. Uh, you know, I know some people probably said self-driving cars were just, you know, ridiculous. That's never going to happen. So, uh, you know, and if you looked at it from just a LIDAR or a radar or one sensor array, you would have probably concluded that it wouldn't work. But now that you have cars that have all these sensor arrays, and in some places like Abu Dhabi in the Middle East, they're actually building roads that have sensors in the roads, they have sensors in the guardrails, they have sensors in the light lighting fixtures around the roads. So soon you'll have cars that are talking to the roads, talking to the barriers, talking to the, the lights, talking to the cars on the road, you know, 10 years ago, would we have ever envisioned that? Probably not. So I, I, I'm not one to go in, out on a limb and say, this is not gonna work because it might work next year. I don't know. I've got a very interesting question. You mentioned about the self-driving cars. Uh, what about uh, a fire engine or an emergency ambulance that would want to take on roads alongside all these self-driving cars? So who, where is the control? Who's going to use that control? You mean having, uh, you know, emergency vehicles be self-driving vehicles? Yeah, in, in the future, I can see that. And I can certainly see uh, self-driving trucks. I can see self-driving cars. I can see it all happening. Right now, probably not. You know, it, it's a few years down the road where the uh, sensors and the, the software is not quite there. I'm not sure if you saw or not that Uber, you know, the self-driving car had a, uh, a driver in the car. They were doing testing around Phoenix and it made a right turn and it killed a, a lady. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the driver was just charged with manslaughter that she was on her phone watching a television program while the car was driving. So we're not quite there yet. Uh, I, and I don't know when it's going to be when we get there. It could be two years, could be five years. Uh, it's certainly not going to be this year or next year, but it will happen. 
Uh, and we will have, you know, all sorts of vehicles, ambulances, fire trucks, uh, over the road trucks, trains for the most part. I don't know if most people know that most of the trains in the United States don't have drivers in them. The drivers actually go to an office and they drive the train from their office and they go home at night. And then someone else comes in and drives the train for the next ship. So, you know, we've gotten to the point where why would you have someone on the fire truck or why would you have someone on the ambulance? Maybe, maybe it's not a self-driving ambulance. Maybe someone sits in an office and pilots it. So there's all sorts of ways to do these kind of things. John, would you like to share a few examples from data analytics uh, from different industries, especially for our listeners who are not very familiar with this particular uh, topic? No, oh, absolutely. Sure. You know, I built a, a system back in, I guess it was 88. 1988 for Pillsbury, uh, where I talked to one of the executives and, and they wanted a system that predicted the optimal test markets for um, new products. Mm-hmm. And he had talk, talked to me one afternoon, I was in his office, we were scribbling on a whiteboard and, and uh, you know, he went home, and I think it was around five, six in the afternoon when he went home. And uh, I just thought, I'm really interested and intrigued by this, I'm just going to start working on it. So I had ordered a pizza and got a six pack of Mountain Dew, love Mountain Dew. And, uh, you know, just started working on it and, and it ended up, ended up building it, you know, that night. So the next day he came in and I was still there, uh, still in the same clothes. And, uh, you know, he walked over and he goes, what are you doing? And, and I was a little delirious at the time. And I said, it's done. And he said, what do you mean? It's done. And I said, I built it. What we talked about last night, I built it. And he said, I said, go home you know, go to the hotel, take a shower, take a nap, come back later. So I had set it off to run and I came back a few hours later and it hit run and it, it ran, it was, you know, multi-levels deep and it hit many, many databases and wasn't very impressive, but it just came back out with the, the names of the cities and the rank of, of their prioritization. And, and that company used that system for, I think, 12 to 15 years to predict target markets. Uh, you know, and I built it just in one night. It was just a flash of, flash of inspiration. So, you know, when I showed it to the guy, he just looked at me and he said, you actually built this, didn't you? And I said, yeah, last night I built it. He told me about it and I built it. And uh, he said, I, I, I was just telling you something I thought was impossible. And I'm like, well, it's not impossible. It's done. So, you know, that was, you know, the, that's just one young person. You know, I, I was young at the time. Uh, just doing something on their own in an inspired fashion. So uh, another application that we built as a team uh, when we were at Dell, a large bank in uh, the Northern European theater. Uh, Most people understand that banks, when they uh, grant loans, there's a threshold in the market that, you know, most banks say we're not going beyond this. Mm -hmm. Well, this bank said, you know, we think we can go to here. So that, that market was about 5% additional market share. So we went in with the the theory that we were gonna do that. So we built models that would take them from here to here and it would not increase their default rate. So, you know, we went in and found out that the optimum model refresh time was about four times a day. So we were running models constantly, refreshing models, putting them into production, and what we ended up doing was taking the, the predictions from the models and inserting it into the credit officer's screen. Okay. 
was up in the corner, it was a number and it was either red, yellow or green. And you know, that number made a huge difference on how they granted credit. And they, they got almost that entire market share because no one else would go into this no man lands area. So that was, that was fun, that was exciting. It's Another a great one, example, isn't it, uh, for uh, human and machines uh, working together? Yeah, augmented intelligence. That's the way to go. There's no doubt about it. You know, it's, I don't believe in all this discussion of, you know, AI is going to take over and, you know, get rid of all the people. I, I, I don't think that's even, I don't even talk about that, to tell you the truth. I don't think it's, it's smart to talk about it. I don't think it'll happen. Um, last vignette I'll talk about is, uh, you know, we had a, a surgeon, gastrointestinal surgeon, a guy named John Cromwell at the Iowa hospital system, uh, at the University of Iowa hospital systems in Iowa. And he wanted to predict, uh, you know, the likelihood that someone would develop sepsis after a surgery. So we started working with him and we instrumented the entire surgical theater, light, heat, humidity. We took all the vital signs off the people that were being operated on. We had a manual data entry feature where the nurses could put in additional factors like someone ripped a, a glove or, you know, something happened, and, you know, something got spilled in the operating theater or something like that. That model actually ran while someone was being operated on and then produced a prediction. So the surgeon, before they closed the patient, would look at that prediction. And based on that prediction, they would either just sew them up like they normally would, or they would take additional precautions, or they would put this very expensive vacuum treatment on the incision. And that reduced the amount of post-surgical sepsis by 72%. And in the United States, I don't know if it's widely known, but you go in for an appendectomy or a, you know, a, you know, a colon rescission or something like that. And those, those are very expensive surgeries. But if you develop sepsis, the hospital readmittance for sepsis is generally two to three times more expensive than your original surgery. Mm. So that saved millions and millions of dollars for the hospital and certainly helped a lot of people in their quality of life. That's, that's fantastic. John, moving forward, I would like to know from you the current state of AI and analytics globally, especially for startups and how it can help in driving innovation. It's uh, unlimited, you know, at this point, it's, it's pretty much limited by, you know, the imagination of, you know, guys like you and people like me, uh, you know, we, we have all sorts of conversations about, well, what should we do and what shouldn't we do? Uh, you know, and, and I, can't, I can't think of a field, I can't think of an area that can't be improved uh, by artificial intelligence. They're just, it's limitless. Uh, you guys follow me on social media and you've seen some of my posts and things like that. Before we came on this uh, session, I just sent out a, uh, a post kind of tongue in cheek that in South Korea, they built an AI based robot for curling. <laughs> so, you know, these curling robots are beating all the South Korean curling teams. And I said, that's the bridge too far. You know, we cannot take away curling from the humans. You know, we can't let the robots take over curling. Obviously, being a little lighthearted and joking there, but I don't, I don't see a place where it doesn't, you know, you can't improve, uh, you know, operations in world, the world and, and intelligence through AI. It's, it's just all everywhere. 
Is it following the, the pattern and the mindset of people in terms of investments? We got a once in a lifetime problem with Corona. So investments after Corona into these uh, imagination and uh, idea coming to fruition about AI and data analytics working together. Is there any um, hotspots and areas of investments that are more prevalent? Well, you know, someone said, you know, way back when that uh, it's a shame to waste a good crisis. Uh, and we certainly are in a, a massive, yeah. incredible crisis. And, and my heart goes out to the people who have been yeah. uh, sickened and have lost loved ones uh, through, this, through this situation. It's really heartbreaking from a, a certain respect. Uh, I see all sorts of companies taking advantage of this to put in uh, RPA technology to automate processes to look at, uh, you know, how they can reinvent supply chains to looking at, you know, the raw materials availability to looking at, you know, manufacturing efficiency. Uh, you know, this is a real opportunity. This is a real game changing world event where every organization should critically look at what they're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, be humanistic about how they're doing things. You know, we, we did a, a forecasting application for one company and, you know, the, the, the view was that the forecast wouldn't be as good because they had 20 people working on it full time, all the time, you know, year round working on it. And it was only available four times a year. So we had one of the data scientists build it, took him about four months to build it. And it was always available 24 seven you know, didn't, you know, just was always available. You know, we fed it data all the time. And what we came back with was that, you know, those 20 people that were working on it shouldn't be fired. You know, what they should do is instead of feeding Excel data and managing data and munging data, they should become analysts looking at the forecast and doing further downstream analytical work, mm -hmm. more value added analytical work. Uh, you know, you've got these 20 people that have, you know, vast and deep information about your business and your cycles. You should not, you know, get rid of them. You should actually upskill and repurpose them. So I think there's plenty that can be done. And I think it can be done in a way that actually gives people jobs that are more inspiring and more interesting for them to do than some of the things we ask them to do today. That's really good because, uh, John, that was one of the reasons uh, I and Madhu started Inspiring Idea because post-COVID, a lot of people's job got impacted or they're now looking to revamp their career. And we thought, you know, we'll get all the industry leaders, technology leaders through Inspiring Idea platform and share this amazing stories because this would help people to look at what they're doing right now and do they want to, if it would help them to grow their career or find a new career, or leverage their current skills to develop using cutting edge technologies. So yeah. that's really fantastic. Yeah, we, we've seen research and it continues to come out. Uh, we've seen research by the World Economic Forum and Gartner. Uh, and there was just another study that came out, uh, I think it was in the European theater where they were talking about robotics. Uh, it's AI and robotics, but automation nonetheless, uh, where you know, this, these technologies were, were eliminating jobs. Uh, but for every job that was eliminated, another 1.3 jobs was created. So, you know, these, these transition times are, will be hard on, on some of the people that are more uh, further along in their careers. Uh, some of the people that are closer to retirement probably won't want to move, won't want to upskill, won't want to do the new jobs that are out there. 
But for the people who are earlier in their career, this is a real opportunity, you know, to keep your eye and ear on what's going on in the marketplace. As we talked before we started the recording, you know, have a real love of lifelong learning and continuous curiosity. I, I think that it's the, the opportunities are, again, boundless, you know, so I don't think that we will see what we saw post-World War II, where someone has a job for their entire career and that job doesn't change. I, mm -hmm. I think those days are gone. Uh, you may have three, four, five, six different careers or epics, you know, throughout your career. You may start out as a data engineer. You may move into an AI modeler. You may turn into an AI strategist. And then, you know, at some point, you know, you might move up to general management and run a company. So uh, I think the career paths are, are multifaceted and manifold and, you know, provide a real opportunity for people to have uh, a chance to make a difference and to have a fulfilling, uh, you know, role in the companies they work in or the companies they start. So uh, the next question is about digital transformation. Now, digital transformation was always important, but I believe post COVID, like a lot of companies are, you know, very conscious about it and working towards a digital transformation. Uh, at the same time, the world is changing rapidly. What's your suggestions to companies who are taking this plunge of doing the dig uh, digital transformation uh, within the organization? especially post-COVID? You know, well, in, in COVID, we were kind of talking about that a moment ago. People are using the opportunity to digitally transform their, their workforces and their processes and their technologies. So that is, I think COVID is a shot in the arm or an accelerator for digital transformation. Uh, there's been a fair number of people talking about digital transformation, but simply talking about it. Mm. They haven't been making, uh, you know, deep changes in their organization, but I think that's really changed with COVID. I do think that we will see and have seen an acceleration in the pace and, and the type of change people are going through, or organizations are going through. And I don't see that slackening or lessening post-COVID. I actually see that continuing post-COVID. And, and John, I've uh, observed a phenomenon that might not be true. I just wanted to ask your opinion about it, where business leaders trying to understand technology is much more easier than a technologist understanding the business concept. So, but ideally speaking, these two uh, people have to work together to produce a strategy and then implement solutions. So how do you think the cross-functional team are going to work together? And then that brings back to the, the book that you wrote. We need SMEs, we need technologists, and then they need to work together and then they can make a beautiful decision for their company. So you have any strategies around teams and how they can work? together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the generally the triumvirate that we see in analytics projects are the subject matter experts, people who are in accounting and purchasing and human resources and manufacturing supply chain. Uh, also the analytics teams, of course, and then the IT teams that are going to have to receive, you know, the models that we build and work on. And those, those three groups, they all have to work together, not it's not as if all three of them are locked together during all parts of the project. You know, when you start out, you may have all three people, three parties at the table at a kickoff, then, then the subject matter experts and the analytic people will go off on their own and work together. And they have to, they have to come together and understand, uh, you know, you know what the subject matter experts want the business to do. And the analyst people have to explain what they can do. 
you know, there's a, a fair amount of back and forth there and, and communication where, you know, getting past uh, the vernacular of each of the, the groups and the acronyms that everybody uses to get to a common understanding. Then once you work through that cycle, then you bring back in the IT people and you have to make sure that again, you bring that IT people back into this ecosystem, the shared uh, communication environment to take the project all the way to the end and be successful. And then take it into not only just development and then the first implementation into production, but into the you know, modeling and production environment that goes on because we all know that advanced analytic models degrade over time and they have to be refreshed and they have to be put it back into production time and time again. So it's, it's one of those things where you almost create this environment with these three groups where they have to break down the barriers so they can all work together and understand each other. Um, so I see analytics as a, 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 almost a forcing function. You know, it makes people work together. They have to work together and they have to understand each other. Because there's no way you can make this stuff work if you don't understand each other. It just, it'll fail. John wanted to touch upon your book, two great books. And we talked about the first book about the analytics of the wind with intelligence. And then uh, the, the recent one, we want to talk about that. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's always great to talk about your books and your work products and things like that. So <laughs> uh, yeah, the, uh, the building analytics teams, uh, uh, I just, you know, it's, often people want to talk about the process of writing a book as much as they want to talk about the book. So let's start out with that. I, uh, you know, I wrote the, released the first book in 2017. You have the book. Thank you very much for buying it. Uh, and then I've been thinking about it for a while. Uh, you know, what, what I wanted to write next, I actually started in late 2019 writing a book on AI and ethics. And I had written the first three chapters and then all these other books came out, uh, on AI and ethics. And it's that, you know, they've done a great job. I can't do any better. I'm just going to stop doing that. So then I had always been thinking, you know, analytics, when, how to win with intelligence was for executives. And then I was thinking, I want to write a compliment book for the frontline managers, the people who are actually running the advanced analytics teams and hiring those teams. So that's what I sat down to do. Um, I did it a little bit differently. I, I started writing it on January 1st of this year. And I set myself a goal to write it as fast as I possibly can. I wanted to make sure that I had published it in six months, wrote it, edited it, and published it in six months. So I wrote just under 100,000 words in, from January 1st to April 13th. And then I was working with the publisher, and I said, this book's got to be out by June 30th, and it was. So, you know, I, I wrote... You know, I'd get up early in the morning and I would write, uh, you know, like you guys, you're doing this, this podcast on your own personal time. I wrote everything on my own personal time, evenings, mornings, weekends, uh, you know, just really worked on it until I got it right. And then, you know, put it out. I, I teased it on LinkedIn. I said, I'm writing my second book. I've written the first chapter, I've written the second chapter, I've written the third chapter. Uh, and the publisher of the first book came back and said, yeah, I'll publish your book. And then I thought, Maybe there's some other people who'd be interested too. So I put it out there and three other publishers raised their hand. And that was a nice, a nice validation that as an author and, and the concept. Uh, and then the idea was to write a book for frontline managers who are hiring analytics teams in enterprise class organizations. Okay, places like IBM and Dell and Citibank and Tech Mahindra and 
Tata and, and all these different places. So, you know, make it, make, give, give people a book that they can actually read about. These are the problems you're going to face. These are the challenges you're going to have to overcome because I know they are challenges because I've made all the mistakes. So I thought I would take the experience of all those uh, faux pas that I had made and hopefully help people not make them. So it, it's really a, a, a how-to book on how to build an analytics team, how to um, connect with your peers and your executives and how to you know, manage a high-performance analytics team so they can actually deliver results that make a difference in an organization. One of the things that's really surprising about the book is that, it, number one, it's, it's, it's in the top 1% of sales on Amazon of all books, which is mind-blowingly surprising to me. Uh, still remains there. And it's being used by a lot of people who are still in their undergraduate or graduate level studies. And I get emails and messages, and LinkedIn connections every day from people saying, I bought your book because I don't know what to expect. Uh, when I'm leaving college and joining an organization, I'm going to be part of a data science team and I don't know what they want me to do. And your book is a really clear way to understand what the world of work looks like. So that's how I wrote the book. That's who I wrote it for. And I'm surprised that there's another much larger audience out there that's interested in it. So I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised. Great job. I'm curious to know, John, have you started writing your next book? <laughs> <laughs> I have. And it's, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen or not, uh, the European Union has put forth a proposal uh, that they're going to create what they're calling data commons. So all EU citizens and all EU-based businesses uh, can subscribe to these data commons and contribute their data. And then the EU is actually gonna sell that data back to everybody in the world. And the citizens of the EU and those businesses of the EU will get data dividends. So they will have control, the companies will have control through the EU on how their data is used. So let's say that you're, you happen to live in Britain and you happen to live in Sweden or wherever it is, just for the sake of discussion, and your data is in the data commons and you go in and say, I don't want any companies that contribute to, that are tobacco companies. I don't want any tobacco companies to ever see my data or I don't like the way Rabobank operates. I never want my data to be used by Rabobank or Deutsche Bank or Citibank or, you know, whatever companies you find, uh, you know, that, that offend your sensibilities. So you'll be able to go in and say, I want, you know, companies that are in green tech, all that they can use, not only my browsing data, but my transaction data, and they can actually see my health data too. So, individuals and companies will have control of their data and they will actually get money from it being used. So I find that really intriguing and interesting. It's something I've been talking about for years that we would have a democratization of data and we would get to a point where we had control over our data and we got paid for using our data. I've been very vocal that Facebook and Google and all these people that have, have made a huge, you know, multi-billion dollars of, of revenue over years and years based on our data, and they don't pay us for it is just 
unfair and needs to change. And, and I've had a lot of people come back to me and say, what are you talking about? Google lets you browse the internet for free. Well, I can get lots of browsers that, you know, don't take my data and let me browse the internet for free. Uh, you know, I can certainly go on different social media sites and do the same. So, uh, you know, I, I think the world can and will change. And that's what I'm going to write about next. That's great. Uh, John, our last question is that we talked about post-COVID, people are looking to reinvent their career or start something new. What would be your one advice, people who wants to build their career into cutting-edge technologies like AI, data science, and others? I'd say, you know, I, and I, I get a fair amount of people coming to me with this question, and they ask me, you know, what, what should I do, John? And, and I say, you know, go to Kaggle, you know, do, do a couple Kaggle competitions and, and go to Coursera or Udacity or Udemy or these online courses and, and see if you really want to do this stuff. Mm. You know, I've had people go do what I've suggested and come back to me and they say, I hate that stuff. <laughs> I'm like, well, then you don't want to be a data scientist. Yeah. You know, don't, that's not the, your thing. Maybe you want to be a gardener, uh, you know, work at a zoo or something like that. There's lots of jobs out there. You don't know, not all of us have to be data scientists. So, you know, my, my counsel is try it. You know, mm -hmm. if you, if you like getting a hold of data and you like managing data and you are in, you just intensely curious about everything in the world, then you might enjoy data science, but you really should try it. You know, don't, you know, don't enroll at one of the IITs in India or, MIT or, you know, any four-year school and, and go get a data science degree just because you heard it was a, a sexy career, go <laughs> try it. You know, you may not like it. Uh, so that's my counsel. How can people reach out to you, John? I'm always available on LinkedIn. You know, I connect with pretty much anybody who's involved in data and analytics. Uh, I generally don't connect with people that I don't have any, any reason to work with or be interested in. So, uh, I'm always available on LinkedIn, so that's ge generally the best place to find me. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a real gold nuggets that we were able to unmet. It's been Thank my you. honor. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in, my friends. We have got thousands of people listening to this podcast and wanted to thank you all for the love and encouragement so far. Some of you have reached out personally to us and thanked as well for producing great quality content. It would be awesome if you like and follow our LinkedIn page, Inspiring Ideas. And please don't forget to hit the subscribe button from where you are listening. We are across all the key podcast channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, etc. We will see you with another great episode next week. Thank you so much.